You guys, it is so good to be with you. Will Bryan, my goodness, what just happened there? Man, my, just my soul is just wrapped up. Good night. Thank you so, so much. Um, deeply moving. Um, man, I have, it's been so much fun to be with you guys. Um, special, special shout out to Cassie and Denali and Chandler last night at dinner. John, Pedro, Sophie, Zach, Zachary. Man, I, I literally, no kidding, take time to pray for you guys. It has just been my joy to know you. So really, I mean that. Um, after uh, being, after years of uh, being a pastor and a missionary, one of the lessons I've learned in my ministry is this. On, on a good day, on a good one, most people will leave my sermons inspired, but largely unchanged. Inspired, but unchanged. And it, it's forced me to have a real gut check. So I've been asking the question, how do people change? I mean, how do our deepest appetites become so fundamentally altered that, that nothing else will satisfy because we want Jesus? That Jesus would be more beautiful and believable than we ever dared to hope or imagine. Change is tough. Lasting change is even more difficult And for sure, there's no shortcuts, there's no magic tricks, there's no pills that we can take that will just fix you and me. Change is difficult. And it's because there's already so much uh, inertia, so much momentum in your lives. Perhaps your heart is gravitating towards this new affection in Christ. But unless something interrupts your life, your schedule's set. The patterns of your life and heart's are largely cemented until we're melted by Christ. Until we're melted by Christ, we will we'll continue to think that Christianity's neat so long as it doesn't interrupt our personal goals and our desires and schedules. Christ will be pleasant and, and even inspiring at moments, but deep change, deep surrender will remain elusive. There's a lot to be said about the nature of change, And I certainly won't talk about 99% of what needs to be said, but there's one thing that we see over and over in the Bible with regards to change, and it it finds itself in almost every conversation of the Apostle Paul, and it's it's the gospel, right? Being undone, being melted by God, and the gospel are not two different things. The gospel actually propels our undoing. We become unraveled by him because it's the power for lasting change. I'm sure you remember some of Paul's most famous words right in the book of Romans where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's to say that the gospel is the power of salvation. It's to say that it's the combustion. It's the fire in the engine, the engines of redemption and change. Now, it's worth taking just a minute and or two in this introduction to, dis- to describe what the gospel is. You see, when you and I talk about the gospel, usually we think about a person, like a, like a personal plan of salvation, right? Maybe the four spiritual laws, or the Romans road, or something like that. That's what we, we're usually talking about when we talk about sharing the gospel. And perhaps that's an okay, legitimate, modern, colloquial, colloquial use of the word, but that's certainly not what the apostle Paul meant when he used the word gospel. Right? The word gospel, the euangelion, had this much larger implication than just simple personal salvation. See, the word gospel in the first century, it wasn't even a religious word. 
It was used by royalty, right? Kings and queens. And so if a king sent out and con- sent out his troops and conquered new territories, when the fighting was completed, there was usually like this royal procession where a herald or a spokesman for the king would go to the town square. He would un- unravel his, his scroll and then he would read the gospel. So in Rome, it was usually the gospel of Caesar. So the gospel means good news, but the king is, assent- is essentially telling this conquered community that they're so lucky to be under the rule of Caesar, right? It's good to be them. Good news. How lucky are you to call Caesar king? And so Paul, he takes this word and he says, you want gospel? I'll give you gospel. I'll show you gospel. He says, Jesus is the world's rightful king, and he, he's taking everything back. How lucky are you? To call Jesus king, everything is being put back in right relationship to the world's true ruler. So when Jesus undoes us and and he melts us, it means that Jesus is taking his rightful place in our lives as king. Now this can be a little bit unnerving because it's kind of hard to believe, right? The news is, is kind of too good. It's too good, and we misunderstand it, and we become paralyzed. We see the beauty of the gospel, and we think to ourselves, never. I could never deserve the right to enjoy and partake in its beauty. God's beauty next to our sin produces paralysis. And we don't dare to get our hopes up because it's just going to let us down. Well, listen, if we're ever going to be melted by Christ, it, it's good that this morning we'll take time to look at the anatomy of this paralysis. And that's going to be the outline of, of my talk this morning, my sermon this morning. It's the pra- our paralysis that we experience kind of has two barriers. We have the, the, the paralysis of a messy life and a paralysis of weak faith. And with that very long introduction, would you, in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? We're in Matthew chapter 28 starting in verse 1 this is the very very best part of the whole sermon let's give careful attention to god's word now after the sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week mary magdalene and the other mary went to see the tomb and behold there was a great earthquake for an angel of the lord descended from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then I'll jump to verse 16. And now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Verse 17. When they saw him, They worshipped him, but some doubted. This is the very word of God. You may be seated.
Now, usually when you, uh, when you think of Matthew 28, for those of us who kind of grew up listening, knowing the scriptures, we usually think of the Great Commission. And this, of course, would be a very uh, fitting ending to the Missio Dei conference. That's what we were designed for. And while that is super important, the, perhaps the best part of chapter 28, at least the most scandalous part, is this group of messengers. Now, why do I say that? Well, Matthew 28, we come to the part of the story where Jesus has already died. He was put in the tomb. And who would be the first two characters to go and check up on Jesus' tomb? None other than two women, both named Mary. Now, this already gets a little bit suspicious. Now, listen, if you're a con artist or a lunatic trying to start your own religion that centers upon the risen Savior, then it's not in your best interest to tell us that two women were selected to be the official spokespersons announcing that Jesus had risen from the dead. The reason? No offense, ladies, but in the first century Roman Empire, women were not even allowed to testify in court. I mean, women, women weren't deemed unworthy. They were deemed unworthy ca- candidates for this kind of work. And to make matters worse, one of the women, Mary, Mary Magdalene, has a very suspect past. I mean, not only is she a woman, strike one, but she was formerly demon-possessed, strike two, and a prostitute, strike three. Prostitute, demon-possessed prostitutes are not exactly the kind of people you want representing your cause, I guess. So why does, why does Matthew do it? I mean, why isn't God embarrassed? By this fact. First of all, Matthew tells us, because that's actually how it happened. Matthew didn't feel the freedom to change history just because the actual events would have been socially embarrassing. Truth matters. But even more importantly, this detail actually allowed the original audience, and you too, to understand the profundity of the gospel message itself. And let me illustrate what I mean. And let me use a baseball illustration. In the early part of the 20th century, um, baseball leagues did not allow African Americans to play. Black players had to play in Negro leagues. But in 1947, the big big leagues, they began to integrate blacks. So Jackie Robinson was one of the first black players to cross over into the professional leagues. So the Brooklyn Dodgers recruited him to play second base. Massive crowds began to protest the integration. Many players, coaches, and fans did some of the most horrible things as they protested Jackie Robinson. So back in those days, racism was still actually very overt and not covered. And so Jackie did not have, Jackie Robinson did not have a lot of supporters. But there was this one guy. His name was Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee Reese was the shortstop for the Dodgers, but he was also the team captain. So On Jackie Robinson's very first road trip, they went to Cincinnati to play against the Reds. And during the pre-game infield practice, the the heckling of the fans turned notably ugly, right? The crowds were really horrible towards Jackie Robinson. And at that moment, Pee Wee Reese walked over to Jackie Robinson and he puts his arm around him as to signify his solidarity with Robinson. Now, when Pee Wee Reese put his arm around Robinson, two things happened simultaneously. First, the scorn of the crowds turned against Pee Wee Reese. All of their hate and dishonor for Jackie Robinson was now just totally put on Reese. But there was a second exchange. Robinson 
received the honor of being loved by Pee Wee Reese. Right? His love and honor represented a kind of a status of acceptance that he had never experienced before in such a public setting. Now listen, I suspect that none of you are experiencing that kind of scorn from the outside. But most of you, I would presume, are experiencing some kind of, some, some degree of scorn from yourselves. See, because while you can fool all of us, you can't fool yourself. And you are all too aware of all of your secret sins. You feel dirty. You feel unlovable. You heap scorn and guilt upon yourself. And you're absolutely paralyzed by your messy life and your messy past. And that's where the hope of this passage is is supposed to change you. See, listen, Jesus is putting his arm around you. Right? See, God is not embarrassed by the messy life and the messy details of these two messengers. Remember? Remember, like, Mary was a woman, formerly demon-possessed prostitute. You would think that this would be such bad luck for God. But that's the point. Because of their mess, they're exactly perfect instruments for God. They are more acquainted with their sin. And so they're, they're more beautiful and believable and grand is the gospel to them, Right? And as they would tell everyone about it, that that message would be spectacular. Jesus would say it something like this in Luke 7. He would say, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little, loves little. You see that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul would say it like this. Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And I would say it like this. Your mess is your message. Listen, I, I want to keep saying this to you. God, God is not ashamed of you. You're not defiled. You've, you've been purchased and declared lovely and lovable. God takes your guilt. And more than that, he's putting his arm around you, simultaneously giving you his honor and acceptance. That's the scandal of the gospel. Don't believe the lies that paralyze you. Your mess makes you uniquely equipped to draw near to Jesus and to others. You've you got to drive this into your heart or you're going to gut the gospel of its power. Now let's, talk, let's look at the second barrier. Not just a messy life, but being paralyzed by weak faith. Being that two women with these shady paths are the news bearers for Jesus' resurrection... That's actually just a foreshadow of a second group of messengers that we're going to see a few lines later. See, the text tells us in verse 16 that the women told the 11 disciples to meet Jesus in the Galilee. And just as the women said, Jesus actually appeared to the disciples. It was amazing, right? I mean, it's breathtaking. Just imagine, imagine the scene. These men could do nothing else except fall on their face and worship the risen Christ. Now you would think, in this most spectacular moment, being with the risen Jesus, you would think that would expel all doubt. That's not what happened, right? The hearts of these men were still a mixed bag. What's verse 17? It says, it says they saw him, they worshipped him, and, but some doubted. They doubted, even as they're clinging to his feet in worship. And that's all that Matthew tells us. 
There's no, no, there's no commentary about it, about their doubt, just that they doubt it. So what, what gives? And here's the thing. Jesus did not see their doubt as some problem that needed to be overcome. Just as he didn't see the fact that Mary Magdalene was a woman and a prostitute as a problem that needed to be overcome. See, we, we completely underestimate our God. So part of the problem is, is we, don't, we don't have an accurate picture of what he's like. See, we imagine God to be like this, um, like this anxious mother on the sideline of her son's football game, right? She's fervently hoping that her son doesn't get hurt. She's, she's wringing out her hands with uncontrollable nervousness saying, oh no, I mean, what's going to happen? I don't want my baby to get hurt, right? Listen, that's not what God is like. God is God. He, he's the one calling the shots. He's not unnerved. Listen, he's not unnerved by your doubts. Being a parent has actually confirmed this. And as I've, it's confirmed how I've understand God. Listen, I got four children. Uh, my oldest, Micah, he's 13, about to be 14. He's my firstborn. But when he was like, I don't know, six years old, he, um, there were times when as his father was shepherding that little buddy's heart, and I had to make some tough decisions, right, on his behalf that he often took exception to, he often disagreed with. So, you know, back then my little buddy's six years old. I mean, he knows nothing about nothing, right? He's six. And at times he seriously calls, in, calls into doubt my judgment. He completely loses faith that I know what I'm doing or that I have the will and power to ensure that he is happy and thriving. And when Micah is at his absolute worst, and I mean, he's, he's a complete basket case, wishing that he had a different daddy or something absurd like that. Do you think that I was sitting in my room, wringing out my hands, thinking, oh no, what's going to happen? Absolutely not. My son's doubt does not deter my fierce and unrelenting affection and love for him. His doubt has nothing on me. I love Micah, not on the basis of his doubt or his lack of doubt. I love him because he's my son. And in fact, when he's at his absolute worst, when he's at his worst, you know what I do? I get closer, man. I make him hug it out with me. I make him cuddle it out with me, right? Here's my point. Your doubt is not a showstopper. God's love is not derailed by your doubts. In some ways, your doubt just means it's evidence of this reality that you're working for. You're wrestling out your relationship with your heavenly father. That was the case even as these 11 disciples clasped the feet of the risen Savior. And you know how the story goes. Between the 11 men who are marred with doubt, few licentious women, Jesus would build his church To this group of doubting, promiscuous people, Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. From one wavering spirit to another, from one doubter to another, from one prostitute to another, the message of the gospel is multiplied. The missio dei is going forth. Isn't it a wonder that God would use us? I mean, filthy, wavering, conceited, selfish, 
perverted, self-addicted people. He delights to. He delights to. Your weak faith is not an occasion for paralysis. God has always used doubters. He finds you remarkably useful. And as crazy as this sounds, we cannot diminish the importance of this point. It has immense theological implications. See, one of the unique features of Christianity is that in every other religious system in the world, the strength of one's faith correlates to the security that that person can feel with their God. That's not the case with Christianity. See, our security is not tied to the strength of our faith. It is tied to the object of our faith, God himself. If you find yourself strangely attracted to Jesus Christ, but you haven't worked out all of the details, listen, I would just encourage you, just jump in, doubts and all. You don't have to know how to read music to start singing. You know what I mean? Don't be paralyzed by the weakness of your faith. Just give yourself to the Lord. Cling to his feet with all your might. Come unraveled. Be melted by Jesus. He's going to work it out. Let me just conclude with um, one final observation and thank you guys so much for your attention i wonder if the key to the heart of the gospel is found at the very end of um, verse 10 jesus says to mary he says um go and tell my brothers to go to galilee now listen jesus didn't say hey go tell the disciples he didn't say go tell the students he didn't say go tell the guys he didn't, he didn't critique them. Now, he certainly could have. I mean, these guys behaved like a bunch of cockroaches when the lights come on. I mean, totally scattered. Jesus is being crucified. They're nowhere to be found. They're totally spineless. No doubt they were paralyzed by the guilt and shame of their actions. And nevertheless, with a word, Jesus reconstitutes this band of waffling men as family. He says, Mary, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. I'm going to see them soon. What grace. Jesus changes our toxic, self-addicted paralysis, and he redefines it with gospel sanity. See, religion says you've got to clean yourself up so that you can be a messenger of God. But gospel says, come as you are. Your mess, it's your message. Weak faith, messy life, yep. But infinitely loved. Jesus Christ. Jesus himself will be your righteousness. That's what we're preaching. Listen guys, we're a mess. I know it. I know you. I'm meeting with you. You're a mess. Love you. It's your mess. He counts you as righteous. That's what I want you to hear. He counts you as righteous. Not because of the strength of our faith or the purity of our lives but because of the strength and purity of Jesus Christ, his son who purchased you. His gospel is true. And this is enough to unravel us. Now, go and make disciples of all the nations. Indeed, reclaim every square inch of creation. Amen.